Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. We are working our way through the doctrinal statement of the church. Um, We started with the Scripture, because we are a Bible church. We believe the Scripture is the inerrant Word of God. We believe that it is God's inerrant revelation to us. Then we moved on to our discussion about God, God being three persons, one God. Then we talked about what? Angels. Then we talked about mankind. And last week we talked about dispensationalism. And if you remember from last week's lesson, in our discussion about dispensationalism, I discussed the fact that that is kind of what makes us unique, makes us a little bit different than other Christian groups. And that it isn't necessary for you to be a dispensationalist to join this church. Today's lesson is a little bit different because today's lesson is what makes us Christian. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, when he says the Son of Man, they know that he is talking about himself. Who do people say that I am? That is the most important question that you will ever ask. Who do you think that Jesus, the Son of Man, is? Today we're going to talk about Jesus. Next week we start talking about salvation. But today it's just Jesus. Just Jesus. Ha ha. And they said... These are the disciples. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Today, you ask people who Jesus is, or in today's phrase, who Jesus was, and you'll get a lot of different answers. He was a great teacher. He was a, well, just another Jewish crazy person around this period who thought he was a Messiah, and then he died. You might even get somebody who says, we're not sure we know anything about Jesus, because all we know about Jesus is what we get from the Scripture, and of course you can't trust the Scripture, because it was made written by Jesus' uh, followers much later, and they just made the whole thing up. You get lots of different ideas about who Jesus is or who Jesus was. I've told you before. Uh, I have a sermon somewhere in some box at home by a, uh, the pastor of a large church in our town, but this was 50 years ago, and the title of the sermon is, Who Was Jesus? I mean, that's what the sermon is about. He was a great teacher. He showed us how to live a good life. He told us what we needed to do. And then he died. So Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? But then he turned to them and he said to them, 
But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, right? Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. He is the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. We'll have a long discussion about that in about four or five weeks. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And as Teresa would point out to you, since we happened to be at Caesarea Philippi in May, when he was sitting there, the place that they referred to as the gates of hell is right around the corner. That was where the cave was that in theory you descended to where all the bad devils were. Anyway, if you have your copy of the doctrinal statement, we are going to talk about Article 6, the first advent. This is Jesus coming the first time. Now, as we have talked about before, Jesus, well, we're going to talk about it, so we'll just stop right there. We believe, we believe that as provided and purposed by God and as pre-announced in the prophecies of the Scripture, the eternal Son of God came into this world that he might manifest God to men, fulfilled prophecy, and become the redeemer of a lost world. To this end, he was born of the virgin and received a human body and a sinless human nature. Now, if we were studying a full theology class, we would spend the next 10 weeks going over that paragraph. There is so much in that. As I said... You can believe in God and be a good Muslim. You can believe in angels and be a good Jew. You can believe in some form of scripture and be a part of a lot of different religions in the world. What distinguishes us is our understanding of who Jesus is, not was, is. That is what distinguishes us. So let's take this apart piece by piece. We believe that as provided and purposed by God and pre-announced in the prophecies of the Scripture, you go back to the Old Testament, and over and over again, you're seeing forward into the coming Messiah. Genesis chapter 3 Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they shouldn't have eaten. God gives a prophecy. He gives a prophecy to Satan, to the devil himself. You are going to nip at the hill of the seed of man, but he is going to crush your head. Adam and Eve know because they have sinned that they are naked. They were naked before. They just didn't know it. So God kills an animal, sheds blood to provide a covering for them. All of these are pictures of what Christ is going to do. 
and you work your way through the Old Testament, and time after time you see pictures, you see prophecies of the coming Messiah, what he's going to look like, what he's going to be, what he's going to do. Remember, John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you the one? And how does Jesus answer? He goes back to the Old Testament prophecies and says the Messiah is going to raise the dead, cause the blind to see, free the prisoner, and that's what I'm doing. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Jesus is not just some random person who pops up out of nowhere. From the beginning of time, that is the plan. The eternal Son of God came into this world that he might manifest God to men, fulfill prophecy, and become the redeemer of a lost world. As I said, what we understand about Christ is what separates us from every other religion in existence. And the Bible is very clear about this. The Bible is very clear about who Jesus is. Sometimes it causes us a little bit of confusion, though. And what causes us confusion is how Jesus, the human being, could be God in the flesh. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Suffice it to say... Jesus is God communicating to us in a way that we could understand. That is, communicating to us as human beings. I've used this illustration before because I just think it's humorous. If you remember, you know, I would drive to work. I'd open my door in my parking place. I would dump my remnant of my Coke on the ground. I iced watered down, and the ants were there waiting for me. <laughs> they were. They knew it was going to be there every day, because it was. We have this exalted idea of us as human beings. We do not understand that the gulf between me and those ants is far exceeded by the gulf between me and God. So what would it take for me to communicate anything to those ants? I would need to become an ant. Well, who wants to do that? I mean, really? Would you want to do that to communicate to these lousy ants? Don't get too strong an opinion of yourself as a human being. God communicated to us by sending God in human form to fulfill the prophecy to redeem us. We talk about general revelation, nature, special revelation, the scripture, but sometimes we forget that 
the special revelation is the person of Jesus Christ. How does God communicate to man? He becomes man. Now, he is still God, and he is still man. More about that in just a moment. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him, Jesus, known. God communicates God to man by sending Jesus to man. For God so loved the world that he gave... You know the rest of this. Okay. Just the most important lesson in the whole series. The next paragraph. The next paragraph. We believe that on the human side, he became and remained a perfect man, but sinless throughout his life, yet he retained his absolute deity, being at the same time very God and very man, that his earth life sometimes functions within the sphere of that which was human and sometimes within the sphere of that which was divine. This is what confuses us a lot. How can he be both? I was talking to somebody this week, and they made the comment that they really like the Apostles' Creed because it's short. They didn't like the Nicene Creed that much because it's much longer. Why is the Nicene Creed longer? Well, the Nicene Creed came out of the Nicene Council who came to try to understand who Jesus was. And to do that, they had to use very specific words to explain who Jesus is. So, who is Jesus? Jesus is a human being. Jesus has all the attributes of humanity. He got tired. He got hungry. He got sad. He got everything that you and I have. When Jesus was going to the cross, he was sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, I don't want to do this. Why? Because he had human flesh, and when they started nailing nails into it, it was nails into human flesh. He was human, yet without sin. Remember, we had this discussion when we talked about mankind. Sin came into the world through the work of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And as such, each of us is born with a sin nature. We are born with a propensity to sin. And the scripture talks about this coming from Adam. Guess what? Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, had no earthly father. Jesus was born without a sin nature. And subsequently, he never sinned. Why is that important? We'll see in just a moment as he presents himself as the sinless sacrifice on behalf of you and me, it was necessary that he had no sin that needed payment for. 
more about that in just a moment. Okay, so most of us have some idea that Jesus was a human being. But what does it mean that at the same time he was God? Do you remember the sermon of, was it last week or the week before, where Jesus is asked, when are these things going to happen? And he says, I don't know. What does it mean he doesn't know? He's God. Surely he has to know. The illustration that I use, and I have the verse here in Philippians to talk about that, the illustration that we've used in here before is simply this. Jesus is God with all the attributes of God. But when he entered human form, he took those divine attributes and it's like he put them on the shelf because he was submitting to the will of the Father only doing that which the Father would have him do. So occasionally, he would reach over there and pull one off when the Father directed him to do it. My favorite example of this is when he and the disciples are in the boat, and he's sound asleep. He's sound asleep, and a massive storm comes up. And the disciples are bailing like crazy, trying to survive the night in the boat. And Jesus is sound asleep. A lot of help he is. And they come and they wake him up, and they said, help us. Now, what do you think they thought he was going to do? Well, I'm convinced they expected him to grab a bucket and start bailing. You know, maybe one more guy bailing is all that it's going to take. What did Jesus do? He reached up onto that shelf, pulled out this thing called omnipotence, and he turned to the storm and said, stop it. And it did. Now, you're a disciple in the boat. You're terrified of storms. You know what storms can do. You've seen the remnants of storms. You know, you understand, and you're terrified of it. But you've never seen anybody who can tell the storm to stop, and it does. Now, they were really terrified. And it says they were scared. And Jesus puts that omnipotence back on the shelf. There are occasions where he says, I saw you while you were sitting in the tree, next to the tree over there. Well, how did he do that? He reached up and he got the right thing off the shelf and he saw, but he only did that under the direction and through the authority of God the Father. In human form, he was demonstrating to us how to live a life according to the will of the Father. So, he was fully God and fully man. We're going to see in just a moment in the book of Hebrews, it talks about Jesus being our great high priest and Jesus being the sacrifice. He is the priest and the sacrifice that the priest offers to us. He is, in fact, both. Now, this is what separates 
Christianity from everything else. The fact that Jesus is God. He isn't just a great teacher. I have used the illustration in here numerous times. It is, um, in its most popular form, it comes from C.S. Lewis. You've heard this before because I've told it to you before. Well, Jesus was just a great teacher. And C.S. Lewis says, we don't have that option. We don't have the option to think that Jesus was just a great teacher. He is either a liar or a lunatic or he is Lord. Why? Well, he said he was God. Now, I don't know about you, but if Chris came over and told me he was God, I would start looking for a psych ward to send him to. Because he's nuts. Really. So if Jesus says he's God, you're not going to think, oh, yeah, well, he's a great teacher, except for the fact he thinks he's God. No. You're either going to say he's lying to me, that is, he willfully knows that he's not God, but he chooses to say it anyway, or he's nuts because he thinks he's God. Those are your two options. Or he's really God, in which case he is the Lord of all of creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This is the opening of John. We talked about John at length last, well, last year and into this year. We know that the Word that he is talking about is identified verses later as being Jesus himself. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." That is Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He emptied himself. Now, some people have a little problem with that passage because it says, in appearance as a man, to lead you to believe that he wasn't really a man, he was just an illusion of being a man. But we understand from the Scripture, the rest of Scripture, that no, he really was a man. He really got tired, he really got hungry, and he didn't want them nailing him to a cross. But he did it. Continuing, we believe that in fulfillment of prophecy, he came first to Israel as her Messiah King, and that being rejected of that nation, he, according to the eternal counsels of God, gave his life as a ransom for all. Now, Back to C.S. Lewis. But this time, the Chronicles of Narnia. I quote this all the time because it's one of my favorite verses. Aslan, the Christ figure, is talking to different people, and they ask him, but could this have happened? And he makes the comment, it's not for us to know 
what might have been. We do know that Jesus came preaching to the Jews that I am the Messiah, and they said, eh, I don't think so. And there are verses that say, okay, we tried that, let's go save the world. But we also know that God knew that that was what was going to happen. God provided Christ from the beginning of time as the ransom for the entire world. This is more of the discussion of last week's lesson about the nation of Israel. The fact that God gave promises to the nation of Israel and those promises are still in place and that the church is not the replacement of Israel. And yeah, that was last week's lesson. So, hmm? (laughs) The next paragraph. Memorize this paragraph. No, don't memorize this paragraph. Memorize the verses that go with this paragraph. We believe that in infinite love for the lost. We could just stop there. The question that I have to wrestle with more than any other is why in the world did God bother with us? I mean, really, why? Why? I mean, I, I, I hate to say this because I don't know if it makes me an evil person, but I don't really care about those ants that I'm dumping my Coke on every week. I, I don't. Why would God send his son to die for you? I mean, let's face it. I'm not sending my son to die for any of you. I'm just not. What is the answer? In infinite love for the lost. For God so loved the world. He voluntarily accepted his father's will and became the divinely provided sacrificial lamb and took away the sin of the world, bearing the holy judgment against sin, which the righteousness of God must impose. His death was therefore substitutionary in the most absolute sense, the just for the unjust, and by his death he became the savior of the lost." There is Christian salvation in a nutshell. Now, next week, when we start actually talking about salvation, what we're talking about is how we respond to that. This is what Jesus did, what God did through Jesus. Let's take this piece by piece, voluntarily. Remember, every time we've worked through a gospel... Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Every time I get to a point in the book where I tell you at this point, Jesus could have stopped it. We're told he could bring down some legions of angels and just clean house. Well, why didn't he do that? I mean, wouldn't that have made sense? Or you get the idea that he is being dragged into this. 
The Pharisees grab him. The Jewish officials grab him. The Romans grab him. The Romans drag him to a cross. And somehow you think he is not in control of things. Jesus voluntarily died for you and me. At any moment, at any moment, he could have said, no, I don't think so. They're not worth it. They're just ants. And he could have snapped his fingers, said a word, and the angels show up. And you know what? I happen to think the angels would have been real pleased to do that. Why is all this going on? Why are we letting them beat the Son of God? Why are we letting them mock him? Why are we letting him? God, just let us go. We'll take care of this. Jesus voluntarily did what he did. He voluntarily accepted his Father's will and became the divinely provided sacrificial lamb. John 1.29, the next day John, this is John the Baptist, John saw Jesus coming with him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You and I don't fully grasp what that sentence would have meant in a Jewish context. You've got to go back to, well, we started in the Garden of Eden with the killing of the animal. Then you move to Cain and Abel bringing sacrifices. One was accepted and one wasn't. But then you jump up to the book of Leviticus and you have sacrifices being described in excruciating detail, all of which involve taking a pure lamb, slitting its throat, covering the altar with the blood. And the Jewish people knew what that was. They knew what it meant to offer a lamb as a sacrifice. What was that sacrifice doing? That sacrifice was covering their sin. I sinned. I messed up. I blew it. I take the lamb and I say, priest, here. They slit it. They pour the blood on the altar. And that covers, that atones for my sin. Until the next time I sinned. And then I drag another lamb. And the next time I sin, and I drag another lamb. And the next, and the next, and the next. When John said, this is the lamb who takes away the sin of all the world, the Jewish audience would have understood what that meant, but they wouldn't have understood how Jesus was going to do that. How is Jesus going to pay the penalty for our sin? took away the sin of the world, bearing the holy judgments against sin, which the righteousness of God must impose. His death was therefore substitutionary in the most absolute sense. You have to understand this. 
You see, sometimes we have this idea that because of what Jesus did, God looks at our sin and says, oh, I'm going to pretend you didn't really do that. I know you sinned. I know it's bad, but I'm just going to look the other way. I mean, I hate to admit this, but it is true. Sometimes my grandchildren do something that I know I should do something about, but I don't just, I just feel like not doing anything about it. So I'll kind of look the other way and go, I didn't see it. And that's what we think God does. God agrees not to look. Once again, we don't understand God. God is holy. God is holy. And God does not associate with sin. So, you and I sin once. Just once. I know, you probably sinned twice in your life. But once. Once we sin, and guess what? We can no longer enter the presence of a holy God. Well, doesn't that mean God's a little picky? No, it means he's holy. Well, doesn't it mean... No, he's holy. So if we are going to enter the presence of a holy God... Our sin has to be covered with something. Because God isn't going to just look the other way and pretend it didn't happen. So, in the Old Testament, we see the beginning of this sacrificial system that is a picture of what Jesus is going to fulfill. It is atonement. But what Jesus does is he dies in my place and your place. He is the substitution. It is substitutionary atonement is the phrase that is used. The just for the unjust. The righteous For the unrighteous. And in order for that to work, Jesus had to be a human who never, ever, ever sinned. Because if he had sinned, then his death would be the penalty for his own sin, not for the rest of the world. But when you have Jesus, who never sinned, who voluntarily, out of infinite love, offers himself as a sacrifice for us, we are ransomed. We are justified. We are redeemed by his work. God presented him, Jesus, a sacrifice of atonement, Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies 
those who have faith in Jesus. Let me let you in on a little secret. You don't want justice from God. You want mercy, you want grace, but you don't want justice. Why? Because you've sinned. But God, who is just through the finished work of Jesus, can justify us. We can be declared righteous. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. 2 Corinthians 5.14 1 Peter 3.8 For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. There are those today who want to reject the idea of substitutionary atonement because it sounds like God is just throwing a hissy fit and is demanding something that is unreasonable. No, God isn't throwing a hissy fit. God is holy. He always has been holy, and he always will be holy. Next paragraph. We believe that according to the scriptures, he arose from the dead in the same body, though glorified, in which he had lived and died, and that his resurrection body is the pattern of that body, which ultimately will be given to all believers. Not only did he die, he was resurrected from the dead. Why is that important? Well, first off, it gives us confidence that it worked. Let's just say that he was the sacrifice, he was killed on our behalf, but you'd spend the rest of your life wondering whether it was true. How do I know that it worked? How do I know that it did what it was supposed to do? Because he conquered death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Et cetera, et cetera. He rose in bodily form. He was a human and God before. He was a human and God after. Now, there is this discussion about in his glorified body. And if you remember, when we finished the book of John, we had a brief discussion about that, what it looks like. And I'll tell you the answer. I don't know. Okay? There are those who believe that Well, he shows up with the disciples, and the disciples were behind a locked door, and some people believe he just kind of rambled through the door. Well, that is an interpretation of that. It could mean they were just shocked to see him because he opened the door. What our glorified bodies look like, speaking on all of our behalf, okay, you can get rid of all the diseases and all the broken bones and all that stuff, but... In the case of Jesus, well, it was a glorified body. It was a body before. It was a body after. And that is the illustration, the proof, if you will, that we too will have a glorified body. Um, We believe that 
on departing from the earth, he was accepted of his father, and that his acceptance is a final assurance to us that the, his redeeming work was perfectly accomplished. We believe that he became head over all things to the church, which is his body, and in this ministry he ceases not to intercede and advocate for the saved. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What is Jesus doing today? He is interceding on our behalf before the Father. I mean, I've used this illustration, and it's kind of hokey, but it's the best I can come up with. You know, I see Jesus and God sitting up there in heaven, and God says, did you see what Kyle just did? That's a sin. And Jesus goes, yeah, I paid the price for that one. Oh, okay, great. Did you see what Kyle just did? That's a sin. And Jesus says, yeah, I paid for that one too. Oh, okay. I know, it's a, it's a bad example. But he's interceding on our behalf to the Father. So, what is the conclusion of all this? Jesus is God and Jesus is man. Don't pick one, take both. In order for the Bible story to work, we have to understand that Jesus is both God and man. Jesus died as the substitutionary atonement for our sins. He rose from the dead, thus demonstrating his power over death. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Now, how does that work out in our salvation? And that's what we're going to start looking at next week. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for what he accomplished in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would understand and worship God for what he's done. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.